Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 5, the reading verses 22 through verse 32. Hear now God's Word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Verse 32 says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Well, today's topic is marriage and family. Our trek through the epistle to the Ephesians has now led us to this very practical and critical application of all that has gone before. And so this sermon will serve as an introduction to the subject before we get to the actual exegesis of this text in the weeks to come. And since so much has been written on the subject, today's sermon will be a little bit different and will contain uh, more than the usual number of quotations uh, because other people have said it so much better than I can. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, reading and preparing for this and thinking through this again. If you can, there's so many subjects in the Bible this way that no matter how many times you go over them, there's always more to think about, always more to apply. You see, the Bible opens with and closes with a wedding, um, and em- which emphasizes the central place of marriage. Marriage was created and sanctioned by God to be the primary and critical institution of mankind. Therefore, God said, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As it has everything it touches, sin has defaced the beauty of marriage, and of course the gospel is designed to restore its loveliness. This section of Ephesians is probably the premier passage on the subject of marriage in all the Bible. It has been read at countless wedding ceremonies, and it offers both theological foundations as well as many practical applications to this subject of marriage. This brings us all back to the fundamental question that we must answer. We really have to answer it regardless of the topic that we're dealing with, and that is this. Does the Word of God speak 
infallibly and authoritative, does it speak infallible and authoritative truth to this subject, to this area of life, indeed to every area of life. If it does, then this is our starting place. This is also our resting place when it comes to these issues. It is where the Bible is where we turn to get our answers. One man and one woman joined together in a communion of love representing Christ and his church. The Christian view of marriage is governed entirely by the teaching of Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, the Apostle derives his instruction in this text, in Ephesians, from both the Old Testament and from Christ. At the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is this issue. A commitment to the Word of God and our conforming our thoughts to His thoughts. That's at the very center. Sometimes people say, well, I want to go to heaven, or I believe I'm a sinner, or even I believe in Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the Bible. I'm not so sure about a number of the things that it has to say. And so that question mark there, but Jesus says what's critical is that His Word abides in us and that we abide in His Word. This is the Word of life. This is the living Word. This is the Word that shall endure forever. And so this is critical when it comes to this question of what are we going to think, what do we have to say about the subject of marriage? If the Bible is not true, if it is not authoritative, then we are, of course, left to make it up as we like. Marriage becomes a human invention or a convention. It is a wax nose to be shaped to fit and accommodate any and every point of view. In other words, our current cultural view that's well on its way down the proverbial slippery slope. Pastor Douglas Wilson wrote on on the uh, direction of our culture. He says, a number of writers, me included, have been warning that the slopes really are slippery and that the admission of something as radical as same-sex mirage into any part of our political life is to introduce it everywhere. And yet it has been surprising to see how fast the whole thing is moving It appears that the incline of the slippery slopes has steepened, and we are now picking up a goodish bit of speed. So, if there is no higher universal authority to speak to this subject, if God did not invent marriage and He does not define its terms, then we are left with our own autonomy to make of it whatever we wish, and it can easily change, it can easily morph, along the evolutionary journey to nowhere. In that case, there are no boundaries, and frankly, it may be done away with altogether. So which is it for you? Joyful submission to the true and faithful and authoritative Word of God or the borderless imaginations of men and women who will determine good and evil for themselves? Now let me say a word or two about some false ideas and false expectations regarding marriage. Remember, as Francis Schaeffer observed, most people pick up their worldviews the way they pick up the measles. They just get it somewhere. We don't know where it came from. 
And this includes, unfortunately, many church members. C.S. Lewis commented on this. He said, be sure you are not making your judgments based on the ideas you have derived from novels and films. This is not to say, uh, this is not so easy to do as people think. Our experience is colored through and through by books and plays and cinema, and it takes patience and skill to disentangle the things we have really learned from life for ourselves. People get the idea that if you have married the right person, I put that in quotes, you may expect that the feeling of being in love will go on forever. I have referenced this before, but I want to do it again because it fits so well. The Abbott brothers captured this common problem in their song, Love Like the Movies. So you want to be in love like the movies, but in the movies, they're not in love at all. And with a twinkle in their eye, they're just saying their lines, so we can't be in love like the movies. Now in the movies, they make it look so perfect, and in the background, they're always playing the right song. And in the ending, there's always a resolution that real life is more than just two hours long. I don't want to be in love like the movies. Because in the movies, they're not in love at all. With a twinkle in their eye, they're just saying their lines, so we can't be in love like the movies. With these false notions, the result is that when people find out that they've perhaps lost that initial feeling, they think that this proves that they've made a mistake and that they are entitled to a change. In this area of life, as in every other area, thrills come at the beginning. They don't always last. New things feel different than familiar things. Perhaps the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest and perhaps an even greater thrill uh, in the future. It's much better and more fun to learn to swim than to endlessly and hopelessly try to get back that feeling you had when you first went splashing in a puddle as a little boy. Another false idea we get from the pop culture is that of falling in love and that it's irresistible. It just happens to someone the same way, somewhat like you got your worldview, like getting the measles or the flu. These irresistible passions are much rarer in real life than in books and movies. This is not to say that Christians are not in favor of romantic love. We certainly are. Quite the contrary, a mature Christian marriage is full or should be full of romance and passion. Nevertheless, this is more the product of a biblical marriage than the cause. Let me say that again. This is more the product of a biblical marriage than the cause. Nancy Piercy writes about how the structure of biblical marriage actually contributes to and defines and shapes marriage. She says, in the biblical worldview, marriage is not something humans may simply redefine at will. It comes with its own definition as the first community reflecting the community in the Trinity. 
In a healthy society, young people in the throes of romantic love do not have to decide for themselves how to create marriage from scratch. Their extended family, the church, the law, and the public ethos all help shape young couples' expectations to what marriage is and what responsibilities it involves. That's how public norms help us have healthier, happier marriages than if we functioned as isolated individuals, making up our own life script as we go along. In a wedding sermon, and I really like this, uh, theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer told a young couple, quote, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. That is really profound. From now on, it is not your love that sustains the marriage. The mar- it is the marriage that sustains your love. A commitment to marriage with its norms and obligations keeps husbands and wives connected through the ups and downs of their emotional life. And so you've heard me say a lot in the last few years that it's all about being a communion of love. The Trinity was a communion of love. They expanded that communion of love in creation, making man and woman, male and female, after the image of God, to walk in communion with one another, to walk in communion with God. According to Scripture, marriage and family were in fact created to be exactly that, a communion, a community of love. A place of mutual respect and self-sacrifice, service, honor, support, provision, protection, faithfulness, and joy. A place of lifelong commitment. Husbands are shepherds and warriors full of wisdom, courage, and tenderness. Loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Representing Jesus to the world. Wives are joyful partners who come alongside their husbands in submission. Showing respect and honor as they represent the church to the world. Husbands and wives are one flesh, walking together in friendship and admiration as they exercise dominion over the earth. Children are the fruit of this godly communion of husband and wife. Godly seed who expand this loving communion, this loving community to fill the whole earth to the glory of God. Again, Pastor Wilson writes, Husbands, your task is to model for the world what the objective gospel actually looks like. And in case you have forgotten, it looks like blood, sweat, and tears. You are the hands of Christ as He preaches His message of salvation to the world and never forget that those hands are pierced. You are husbands. You are to be pierced. You are the head. Does that tempt you to puff up yourself as though you, uh, as though that meant you were the king boss? No. You are the head. And you are instructed to be the head the same way Jesus was. How was Jesus the head? Remember that if you are the head, you are supposed to have a crown of thorns jammed on. And wives, your task is to model for this lost world what a subjective and personal response to the gospel looks like. 
As I have noted before, we are all limited and we can't duplicate what Christ did. But even though we can't duplicate it, we're commanded to imitate it and to imitate it as best we can. Husbands, the world is watching you. You are to model what the saving looks like. And wives, the world is watching you. And you are to model what the salvation looks like. This is what you and I are called to in Christ. And some of you are doing very well and others need a fresh perspective. Again, Nancy Piercy in her new book, Love Thy Body, wrote, Scripture teaches that the relationship of husband and wife uh, even has the supreme dignity of reflecting the relationship between God and his people. Through the prophet Hosea, God says to the people of Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Covenant marriage is intended to be a visual image of the human divine relationship. In the New Testament, the same imagery of marriage is applied to Christ and the church as his bride. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And in his vision of the end of the world, John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So when people witness the loving, faithful relationship between husband and wife, they are meant to see a picture of how much God loves his people. And M.T. Wright similarly observes of our text today from Ephesians. The fascinating thing here is that Paul has a quite different way of going about addressing the problem in gender roles. He insists that the husband should take as his role model not the typical bossy or bullying male of the modern or indeed the ancient stereotype, but Jesus himself. But you say Jesus wasn't married. No, but throughout his, this letter, Paul has spoken of the church as the body of the Messiah, and now he produces a new twist from within this theme. The church is the bride of the Messiah, the wife of the King. The church became the Messiah's bride not by being dragged off unwillingly by force, but because he gave himself totally and utterly for her. There was nothing that love could do for the Messiah's people that he did not do. Although the crucifixion plays a central role in Paul's thought in almost every topic, nowhere else outside this passage is it so lyrically described as an act of complete, self-abandoning love. And you say, Our marriage doesn't look like that. In fact, it falls way short of the glory of God. Well then, your marriage needs some gospel infusion. Perhaps you haven't seriously applied what the Bible says about marriage, or perhaps you've taken too much for granted, as though this comes easy. G.K. Chesterton said marriage is an adventure like going to war. 
Are you fighting in the good sense for this kind of marriage? Are you in earnest to be the kind of husband or wife that God has called you to be? Or are you waiting on your husband or your wife to be that first? Of all the things you do in your Christian life, there is nothing more important than what you do in your family. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children, siblings, these are your closest neighbors. And if you can't live like a true Christian there, then you really can't live like a true Christian anywhere. This is your place to be trained and tested and proven. It will be seen how it'll be seen in how you speak to one another and how you serve and sacrifice and how you eat together and how you resolve conflict and how you forgive and extend God's grace and how you show hospitality and in a thousand other ways. But all of this must be kept in proper perspective. Like most issues, there are ditches on both sides of the road. Neglected and abused marriages and families are a dime a dozen. But marriage and family can also become an idol that forgets its God-given purpose, which is to serve and glorify Him. So our loyalty to the family, or our loyalty to our kids, or our loyalty to the clan, or whatever, supersedes our loyalty to God. And that's where we can go awry. Pastor Tim Keller writes, in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. But in in talking this way, there is a danger of falling into the opposite error that characterized many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life. And so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interest. By contrast, contemporary Western societies make the individual's happiness the ultimate value, and so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. That's God's Directives. That's God's design. That's God's order for the family. Alexander Schmemann wrote this. I really like this. A marriage which does not constantly crucify its own selfishness and self-sufficiency, which does not die to itself that it may point beyond itself, is not a Christian marriage. The real sin of marriage today is not adultery or lack of adjustment or mental cruelty. It is the idolization of the family itself. The refusal to understand marriage is directed toward the kingdom of God. 
This is expressed in the sentiment that one would, quote, do anything for his family, even steal. The family has here ceased to be for the glory of God. It has ceased to be a sacramental entrance into his presence. It is not the lack of respect for the family. It is the idolization of the family that breaks the modern family so easily, making divorce its almost natural shadow. It is the identification of marriage with happiness and the refusal to accept the cross in it. In a Christian marriage, in fact, three are married, and the united loyalty of the two toward the third, who is God, keeps the two in an active unity with which other as well as with with each other as well as with God. Yet it is the presence of God which is the death of the marriage as something only natural. It is the cross of Christ that brings the self-sufficiency of nature to its end. But by the cross, joy entered the whole world. Its presence is the real joy of marriage. It is the joyful certitude that the marriage vow in the perspective of the eternal kingdom is not taken until death parts, but until death unites us completely. The love that is necessary for marriages and families to survive and thrive is much bigger, much deeper than that of our waxing and waning feelings. I am not diminishing the importance of feelings. I am simply saying that this kind of love transcends feelings. C.S. Lewis described it this way, love, is, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity, maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other, as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. Jesus and Paul didn't just pick up the cultural norms around them when it came to the subject of marriage. That's a popular thing to say. Well, that was the, back then. That was the old way. No, no. Like almost everything else they did and everything else they said, they spoke a countercultural message. A message that would transform existing cultures. And that's the message that we must deliver to our world as well. And, that, and, and in order to do that, it's not just going to be what we're saying. It's not going to just be from sermons. It's mostly going to be from how our marriages look and what we show the world. Chesterton wrote in Everlasting Man, But Christ, in his view of marriage, does not in the least suggest the conditions of Palestine of the first century. He does not suggest anything at all except the sacramental view of marriage as developed long afterwards by the church. It was quite as, it was quite as difficult for people then as for people now. It was much more puzzling to people then than to people now. Jews and Romans and Greeks did not believe and did not even understand enough to disbelieve the mystical idea that the man and the woman had become one sacramental substance. We may think it an incredible or impossible ideal, 
but we cannot think it any more incredible or impossible than they would have thought it. In other words, what else is true, whatever else is true, it is not true that the controversy has been altered by time. Whatever else is true, it is emphatically not true that the ideas of Jesus of Nazareth were suitable to his time, but are no longer suitable to our time. Exactly how suitable they were to his time is perhaps suggested by the end of his story. They nailed him to a cross. So marriage is important and glorious, but it is also hard and challenging. It is here where our faith gets tested and tried on a daily basis. It is here where we're called upon to deny ourselves daily, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Marriage is bigger than the individuals in it. It binds us together. It obligates us to press on and to press upward. And I will close with an extended quote from Chesterton again. In everything on earth that is worth doing, there is a stage when no one would do it except for necessity or honor. It is then that the institution upholds a man and helps him on the firmer ground ahead. This is a solid fact of human nature. It is amply sufficient to justify the general human feeling of marriage as a fixed thing. The essential element is not so much duration as security. Two people must be tied together in order to do themselves justice for 20 minutes at a dance or for 20 years in a marriage. In both cases, the point is that if a man is bored in the first five minutes, he must go on and force himself to be happy. Coercion is a kind of encouragement. And anarchy, or what some call liberty, is essentially oppressive because it is essentially discouraging. If we all floated in the air like bubbles, free to drift anywhere at any instant, the practical result would be that no one would have the courage to begin a conversation. It would be so embarrassing to start a sentence in a friendly whisper and then have to shout the last half of it because the other party was floating away into the free and formless ether. The two must hold each other to do justice to each other. If Americans can be divorced for incompatibility of temper, I cannot conceive why they are not all divorced. I have known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the instant when incompatibility becomes unquestionable. For a man and a woman, as such, are incompatible. Well, we have much more to glean from this passage in Ephesians 5, and we'll be looking at that in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your word is so direct and practical. We don't need to be perplexed about how to relate its doctrine to the everyday issues of life, for you have given so much specific guidance. 
We pray specifically that we may honor what you honor and flee from all dishonorable things. We are continually tempted by our own lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and pride of life. Protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray for help and wisdom and courage in in guiding, establishing, and maintaining our marriages. Help us to nourish one another in Christ. It is only when we remember your promises that we can enjoy the benefits of your covenant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our homes are the hub of operation to accomplish the mission that we have been given. Regardless of our immediate positions in the family, married or unmarried or child or uh, other relationships that we have in our extended family, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is our highest goal. Your house is to represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a communion of love. Your table and your bed must be centers of this communion, places where you will serve and be served. You will be instructed, nourished, and renewed. The mission of marriage is to exercise dominion for the glory of God. In other words, to expand His glory and fill the earth. This will first be seen in the relationship between husband and wife in how you love, sacrifice, serve, and respect one another. And then the mission will be extended to the rest of the family in their various relationships. God has called a husband to this great mission, and he has given him a wife to come under that mission. Together they will fulfill his dominion mandate. In other words, like Abraham, God intends for your family to belong to him and then become a blessing to the whole world. The church is the bride and Christ is the husband. We come now to this table which represents all the forms of loving communion that are set before us. This poetic image which is designed to provoke all of our senses and stir our passions for him. He is our great provider, protector, lover, and savior. And we come now to remember all of that and to renew covenant with him. O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust you and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ and that we might act now to build and advance your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call that we might actively evangelize the nations and take on the mission that you have called us to. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, indeed to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. Give us courage and boldness to speak the truth in love. And now, as we begin this new week, may we do so with fresh commitment to our Lord and Savior. Bless now our rest, our feast, and our ongoing communion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Amen.